0: Alright, good morning. I'm Cameron. I'm the lead pastor here at Christ Community Church. If you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Hosea. Um, it is the first in the uh, group of, of books called the Minor Prophets, right after Daniel. Uh, and we're only going to deal with verse 1 today, uh, which uh, is not actually true. We'll deal with verse 1 and then some verses from uh, Second Kings to give us context. So this is more of an introductory sermon to the whole book of the Prophecy of Hosea, just to give us a perspective on what it is that uh, God is calling Hosea to do and to help us better appreciate how truly gracious and kind and merciful our God is. Um, So often I think that we have this perception, um, and and I don't really know where it comes from because it's quite unbiblical Uh, that there is an Old Testament God who is angry and he just enjoys killing people and destroying what he has made. And again and again and again, what I hope you have seen as we have looked at various books from the Old Testament, we even looked at grace in unexpected places as we looked at the Torah. Um, and, And we saw again and again and again that no, that's not the primary mode of God's character, but he is a loving father and he will protect his children just as we would And so uh, what I hope that we will take away from this morning and the entire book of Hosea is that God's justice is redemptive. He always uses his justice to, uh, to and his judgment to try to draw his people back to him. Now, the only exception you might would say might be final judgment, but even final judgment is grace because what final judgment allows is for God's people at long last to be free and unfettered of all of the burdens of our brokenness and our tears and our sorrow. So even final judgment is grace. And you may say, well, not for the people being judged. Well... That may be true if they had not heard for years and years and years the truth of the gospel. And what we're going to see is that while judgment is going to fall on the North Kingdom, it is not because he didn't, he didn't cry out to them for 200 years to return to him, and they chose not to. And so, um, as we look at uh, this passage this morning, there's going to be a good bit of history, which for some of you, you're like, finally, a sermon with some history in it. And there's others of you thinking, oh, I picked the wrong Sunday not to skip. Uh, I I get it. Uh, We'll get through this. We'll try to, it'll be a mix of both. It'll be history mixed with grace. Because one of the things we have to understand is that God actually works in history. He doesn't just work above history or without the the means and institutions and governments and people and all of the things that that are part of history. He works in and through all of those things because he's sovereign. And he is the God who works and uses everything that is in history. And it's a wonderful thing for us when we can reflect on those things and see where God's hand is always working. And so um, one of the things that I I hope that we do after the whole of this is we have just a deeper appreciation for God's justice uh, in the most gracious sense of what that means and an even deeper appreciation of his covenant love, which hence the title of this sermon series. So the question that I have for you is what, what comes to your mind, if you're honest, when you hear the terms judgment or justice in reference to God? Now, if most of us were honest, we're we're probably most influenced by a bad experience. And usually it's a bad experience with someone who is strident at the top of their lungs who, who take great joy in seeing some people punished. I love the way Spurgeon says it. He says, we should never speak of hell, which is ultimate judgment, without tears in our eyes. And I would even back that up and say, we should never speak of judgment or God's justice at all Without tears in our eyes because of its necessity, because of the sin and the brokenness of this world. And so we should be the most humbled by and gracious of all people when it comes to these terms and these ideas. I love the Belgic Confession, the way it says that it it was God's justice that was given and poured out on Christ. For our, on our behalf so that we could receive the full gifts of his covenant love. And amen. So as you think about that, as you think about what has most influenced your understanding of God's judgment and God's justice, you want to ask, is it biblical? Is your view actually biblical? Now, let me give you a qualification. It can't be a one verse biblical, right? So you can't come to me and say, well, Nahum shows Because there's a long history there. You can't talk about Nahum without talking about Jonah, which was the grace that came to the Ninevites for that first generation. And subsequent generations forsook the faith of their fathers, the newfound faith of their fathers. And thus judgment had to come. Thus Nahum comes. Don't quote Obadiah to me about the Edomites. As your singular evidence that God is judgmental, because again, that we could speak of the whole history of the Edomites and how they got to where they were and who their father was and what he rejected and how God's grace begged them for years and decades and in various ways. And they hardened their hearts and they wouldn't listen and they wouldn't see. And thus, judgment had to fall so that all of God's people would not be lost. That's what's critical for us to understand. And so it's worth you meditating on. I don't know that it's the most fun thing to think about on a Lord's Day Sabbath as God's justice and judgment. But I would encourage you to try to, try to discover and ask the Spirit to help you have a biblical understanding and that the Lord may help you grow in your understanding through the prophecy of Hosea, Because we're going to see that God's justice is redemptive. It's always to call us back to him. And it's often progressive. It unfolds little bit by little bit over time as he progressively will take something away before he has to actually send us into exile. And so, um, as we approach the book of Hosea, what you need to know is the time in which he is speaking. It's a time actually of great prosperity, for the North Kingdom, and if you're wondering, what, what North Kingdom, what does that mean? Well, the North Kingdom, which was called Israel, came into being uh, after the sin of Solomon. Now, if you, you want to read up on this for yourself, uh, it's, a great, uh, it's a great thing to read, First, beginning in First Kings 11 and reading from there. But Solomon, if you remember, departed from the Lord. And in departing from the Lord, the Lord grew angry with him because of, not because of Solomon, but because of the cost to the people, right? As the king goes, so the nation went. And so God said, I'm going to divide the kingdom. And he rose up a man named Jeroboam, son of Nebat. And he made him essentially the king of the northern kingdom, which was the ten tribes that broke away from Judah uh, and, and Benjamin and decided to kind of go their own way. Now, what Jeroboam unfortunately did, instead of recognizing that he was a sovereign king of the Lord and honor the Lord, he decided instead to set up all kinds of false worship. Now he did something very interesting. The things that he set up for the people to worship were these giant golden calves. Interesting. Where has that been heard before? Where have we seen a golden calf emerge and be told the people be told, behold your god who led you out of Egypt? Well, Aaron made that mistake long ago when he cast all the gold into the fire in the book of Exodus when Moses had disappeared. So think about how Is Jeroboam utterly unconscious of this story? Does he not know that making a giant golden calf would actually point back to one of the roughest times in the history of God's people? Does he not know the story? Did no priest or prophet warn him? They did, but he set him up in Dan and Bethel. Bethel means the house of God. What kind of arrogance is this? Not only did he do that, But he set up false priests, and he set up false prophets, and he set up false worship so that the people would not go down to the true temple in Judah, in the southern kingdom. And so he wanted to keep everybody for himself. He wanted by his own workings and machinations to control the nation. Now, those of you who are parents, how easy is it to control just two people, much less three Those of you who are brave enough to go four and and on up, right? Think about trying to control an entire nation of people with these false and bad ideas. Well, in order for that to take place, what's got to happen is parents have to teach children and people have to buy in, and that is incredibly costly to the people of God. That means they would be swept away ultimately. And so God in his grace sends a prophet to Jeroboam to tell him not to do what he's going to do. And uh, if you know anything about the story, it's he reaches out to take hold of the prophet and his hand turns leprous. Did you lay your hand on the man of God? Don't, y'all don't worry about that in reference to me. That's probably not going to happen to you. But, but in this case, he tried to lay his hands on the man of God and it, it, it's, God struck him. Now, that doesn't stop him either. And then God pronounced judge, pronounces judgment on the entire house of Jeroboam. as a a warning, a gracious warning to the entire people of God and to the kings who would come after him. Do not follow Jeroboam. But sadly, if you read the history of the northern kings, not one of them turns from this way. And every one of them, it says, it has this phrase, and we're going to see it here in just a bit when we get to 2 Kings, which is actually a couple hundred years later. And this king continued in the, son, in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And this king continued in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. It just goes on and on. Generation after generation falters. And God, all along the way, if you read, and this is why the historical books I think are actually beautiful. I studied them last year and was deeply blessed, actually. Even though it's a hard read, it's hard to read about Broken political stuff, like we have no idea what that is, but it's hard to read about past broken political things. I mean, praise God we don't deal with those things. But, <laughs> but, but over and over again, they fall and they take people with them and God sends prophets to speak to them and God sends a, a, a piece of judgment to try to get their attention and they reject and they reject and they reject. So it's critical for you to know how long God tried to get the attention of the people of the northern kingdom, both kings, priests, prophets, and people. He was so gracious. Again and again he came. If you know anything about the prophet Elijah and Elisha, they were north kingdom. King Ahab was a northern king. They didn't listen to him. They didn't listen to any of that stuff. They didn't, it didn't bother them that the prophets of Baal were all slain in this one event. 400 of them go down. Still didn't bother anybody. They kept worshiping Baal. Like, so they have all of this season of prosperity. So this particular event where Jeroboam II is now in power, it's around about the 750s BC. And if you read 2 Kings 14, you will see beginning verse 23 that, that Jeroboam II had actually expanded the northern kingdom. They're under great expansion. Things look great. They got more resources coming in than they've ever had. Times are good, things are great. And they're worshiping Baal and they're worshiping other foreign gods, and they don't, they don't need God. So it is into this circumstance that Hosea is called to step. And that's critical for you to understand that the people were in a season of great prosperity. Now, it was about to change. There was a storm brewing in this country of Syria as they were beginning to rise in power and they were going to threaten the northern kingdom. But everything, as far as anybody could tell, looked great. Listen to this quote from Old Testament scholar William Dumbrell. What ought to have been the good life in the land is the essential theme of the book of Hosea. This good life is clearly the great covenantal blessings to which the book of Deuteronomy points, a book bearing a marked relationship to Hosea. But Hosea, by Hosea's time, the land by which Israel was virtually identified was about to become desolate how how could it be recovered hosea's answer is that it will be recovered only by a fresh initiative from yahweh the covenant god who made it available in the first place yahweh will not desert his people and so into this circumstance what ought to have been a time of great celebration and a great blessing from yahweh instead they were giving credit to baal God calls Hosea. Now, let me read Hosea 1.1 to you. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Bere, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Now, it's important for us to pause for a second because the word of the Lord coming to them matters. Now, the first question that we have to ask is, which Lord? Who are we talking about? From whom does this word come? Now, uh, in Hebrew, the term there is Yahweh, right? So why is Yahweh an important name for God? Well, where do we first encounter really the name Yahweh? Well, we, we see it in the, in the book of Exodus when uh, Moses is before the burning bush and he is told, you have to go and tell Pharaoh he is not God and let my people go, uh, otherwise it's gonna hurt And Moses, if you remember, says, and that's obviously a loose translation on my part, uh, and then Moses says, hey, exactly on what authority am I to stroll into Pharaoh's courts and tell him he's wrong? Which is a fair question, right? How many of you have kind of been set up for something like that, where some, like your older brother's like, hey, you need to go tell mom and dad. They are crazy, and they're wrong. Go, yeah, yeah, go. Tell us how it works out. We'll be waiting over here. (laughs) Don't tell them we sent you, by the way. How often have we been set up, right? Whereas Moses is going, by what authority? You remember what God says. You tell him that I am sent you and I am is with you, Yahweh. The covenant God, the God who is um, all of the things that Exodus 34, 6 through 7 tell us about him. And if there's any passage that you ought to commit to scripture, that is one of them. And I've preached on this before, but remember what it says. When God passes before Moses, he says, The Lord, the Lord your God, is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And it goes on and talks about forgiveness. And it talks about how even the sins of the fathers can only make it to the third and the fourth generation that even he will say no more. Sin cannot continue to ravage my people. This, this covenant God who is both just and merciful and gracious. So, this word is coming from Yahweh, not just any God, not just any term that could be used of any other God. No, this is specifically Yahweh, the covenant God who has again and again, up to this point, shown himself to be faithful to his people. And again and again has shown himself to be good in all of the things that he said that he is. So this is a word coming from a specific God. A God that is worthy of our worship and worthy of our attention. So what is the word, now that we know who sent it, what is the word that he sends? If you would, flip to the very end of Hosea. Now, all throughout Hosea, there are in between, interspersed between the diagnosis of what's going on in the country and the diagnosis of what's going on in Gomer's life and and all the brokenness. There are these interspersions of just great grace. And we're going to read those as the benedictions each week so that we remember that while Hosea has some hard things to say to us, that he has not forsaken his people and the whole reason he says the hard thing is to draw us back to him. But listen at what the very last chapter says because this is the word that has come. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, Take away all iniquity. Accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls and the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will say no more. Our God, to the work of our hands, in you the orphan finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take the root like trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim. Now, let me pause right there. Ephraim is another name for the northern kingdom, for Israel. Uh, It is a reminder of kind of two things. One is that good came from uh, the the house of Ephraim. Um, um, Joshua, who took over after Moses. Samuel, the prophet. But also, unfortunately, Jeroboam. So Ephraim is a reminder of who they could be, but instead also who they are. So Ephraim is a very specific title that he uses for Israel, the North Kingdom. So when you encounter that, know that that's what that means. Oh, Ephraim, what have I I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right and the upright walk in them but transgressors stumble in them. So hear that the word of the Lord that is coming in the prophecy of Hosea is a, is a call to repent and be restored to the Lord and receive all the blessing that is from his hand and to stop giving credit to Baal, who doesn't love them and who is a no God at all. So all of Hosea is a, is a wooing of, of God's bride. Now think about how many times in the New Testament we hear similar language. When Jesus says, I am the vine, and in me you have life. In me, fruit is born by God. Being connected to me is what gives you life. Same language is being used here. And the, the, the thing of this is this is contingent prophecy. If you listen, you'll be restored, guaranteed faithfully. If you don't, you will suffer pain of exile because I cannot let my people be utterly destroyed by their sin. Praise be to God that he loves us enough to discipline us, that he loves us enough to give us his justice. He loves us enough to judge even when we don't recognize that we are our own worst enemies. So, Hosea, who we know very little about, is given this word, this word to speak to the people. And he does it, for the best that we can tell, over about a 30-year span, given the kings that are listed. Now, the kings that are listed are mostly from Judah. Now, he, he does speak to Judah later on in the prophecy, but his, the majority of what he does is speak to the northern kingdom. And so, so those kings, we, we won't spend a whole lot of time worrying about them, but it only lists Jeroboam II. And then there are other kings who will come after because Hosea's span of ministry is about 30 to 40 years, depending on which scholar you look at and when when we, because we don't know exactly when he began. We do know that he's the son of Bere, which we know absolutely nothing about. We know he's a a resident of the northern kingdom and that's about it. And what's interesting about the book of Hosea, um, the first three chapters, he's going to be asked to do something incredibly hard. It's what we call lived or enacted prophecy. So he is going to be asked to marry a woman who doesn't love him and who is constantly chasing after lovers less wild and and using herself as commerce as if she meant nothing at all. She is going to bear him children that are not his, some that are his, some that are not his. And he's going to be called to go after her again and again and again. As a testament to the people of Israel, now, you may say, isn't there another way? There is, actually, and it was Jesus. This is why we don't have to keep doing these kinds of things today. We don't have to, like Isaiah, strip down and carry a burden and run around in the streets. You can do that, but they kinda, I think they put you away for things like that. <laughs> and there's medication. Um, you don't have to marry someone that, that is not going to love you as Christ loved the church. You don't. He's not calling us to suffer prophetically because the word has been spoken. Justice has been rendered in Christ. Our calling is to live out that now in the blessed redemption that is Jesus. And the fullness of that applied to us. We're not called to do these kinds of things because they are foreshadows of what Christ is going to do. For those of you who think Christ spent his life single you make the mistake of forgetting the language of the New Testament that speaks of him being married to the church. That's why we read the the marriage supper of the Lamb as part of our assurance of pardon to remind us that this marriage language is, is important to our New Testament understanding of who Christ is. That He would wed himself to us who are constantly looking and commodifying ourselves and selling ourselves out all the time And he comes after us again and again and again. So Hosea, over that 30-year span, cries out to the people both with his life and with his mouth. And he begs them to hear the truth. So the book is broken up into, like I said, the first three chapters are uh, that enacted prophecy. And I have had a couple of parents ask me, and I, I spoke to this last week and I want to speak to it again. What kind of language are we going to be using over these next few weeks? Um, Well, you do need to prepare your children for biblical conversations about biblical things. Now, I'm not going to push the envelope. Um, There will be no videos shown for examples. There will be no enacted realities, nothing weird like that. But we are going to speak of adultery, which is actually too soft a term for what's actually going on here. But there's an analog. Uh, And we'll speak of harlotry. There's other terms we will choose not to use at this time to give you parents time to... Uh, kind of speak to your children about these things. We will be done with the majority of that before our kindergarten through second graders will be in the service with us uh, come summertime. So it won't be as complex once we get into chapters four and beyond. The rest of the book of Hosea, chapters four through 14, are um, now spe- speaks of Israel's current reality and how God progressively comes for them and how God uh, continues to try to hem them in just as as Hosea was called to do with Gomer and love them well and, to, and, and he'll take things away progressively and he'll address their political situation and he will address their spiritual situation and there's words that we need to hear in all of those things. And that'll be uh, chapters 4 through 14, which is the, is the true reality of Israel in that. And so, as we move from this verse to kind of see um, what exactly is the circumstance, which we've already spoken to and we'll deal with fairly quickly, but I want you to hear this this, um, from Thomas McComsky, who's an Old Testament scholar, what he says about this passage. He says, the word of the Lord was needed in this time of declension. Let me pause right there for a second. Isn't it gracious that the word of the Lord comes before the people know they need it? Did you hear that? Isn't it gracious that the word of the Lord comes before the people ever knew they needed it? Now, how, uh, how, how much of redemptive history is wound up in all that? Didn't Jesus come before the people knew they needed him? Didn't God uh, call his people to him before we ever knew we needed him? Doesn't, isn't that the story over and over and over again? And my hope for you is that you see that that is great grace great grace that the Lord moves long before you even know what you need. We were talking the other, uh, just last night with some friends about um, my own kind of circumstance and story and how beautiful it was after I became a believer, so I was a radical anti-theist up into my um, late 20s, and how beautiful it was for me once I became a believer to look back and see God's hand at work and moving in all these different places where I had no idea that's who it was. I was an addict. I was suicidal. I was, felt like I was losing my mind. And the Lord orchestrated me to work with a man named John King who was paralyzed from the neck down. And through uh, the Golden Girls and in the heat of the night, uh, saved me um, over time. And so the Lord was so gracious to preserve me, and I didn't know. I was so angry and so wanton of destruction, and yet the Lord was speaking and doing and moving, and I didn't know I needed it. In fact, I thought I was doing pretty good, which is weird. Speaks to the psychosis of the whole thing, right? In fact, when I, the, the week I became a Christian, I had just broken up with Susan. A week later, I become a Christian. I'm on top of the, I didn't know I needed all this stuff. And so the Lord is always, and this, this is a good word to us, the Lord is always moving. He's moving when we don't know what we need, and he's moving to provide, and he's so gracious. So the word comes to a people you have no idea they're fixing to need it. McCombsky goes on. He says, The word of the Lord was needed in this time of declension, and it is, a ref- it is refreshing to read at the outset of Hosea's prophecy that the divine word had entered the prophet's consciousness. The word of God had come into the sphere of human history. The gloom of this time of national and theological emergency was to be illuminated by the will of God as it was communicated to Hosea and through him to the people. So what a gift a gift! that on the verge of the collapse of this nation that will happen over the next 30 years, that a word was spoken to them from Yahweh, their covenant God, so that they can't say, you didn't tell us, Lord. You didn't tell us. No, he did. So my question for us, and this is for you to meditate on this Lord's Day Sabbath, what are some ways in which God's word has served to warn you of his redemptive justice and call you to return to him in his covenant love. What are some ways in which you you received a word before you knew you needed it and then a few days later, a week later, a month later, you look back and you realize the Lord was moving and speaking and providing you with something you desperately needed. And how good is he that he graciously, before judgment falls, comes to us lovingly in the person and work of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit and through his word. This is one of the reasons why we make this statement. You have no idea what you're doing to yourself months from now, a year from now, or even to your neighbors through your prayerlessness and your lack of devotion. You can't pull from a well where there's no water. And so this is why it's so critical because God is faithful. We read not because God's gonna love us more. We read because we want to know of God's love for us more. We read because we know that our neighbor, at some point, this is how God works. Remember, he's supernatural. The whole thing is supernatural. That should not make us uncomfortable. He speaks to his people through his word and uses the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, may we be a people who are rich and deep and well. Because we have so much of the water of the word filling it up. In prayer, again, these times of, of, of great prosperity, they come and they go. Right? It won't always be this way. Things change swiftly in this fallen world. So what are some ways in which the Lord has used his word to speak to you? If you would, take a moment to turn to 2 Kings 15. I just want to show you kind of the circumstances of the kings themselves. Um, And and we won't spend a lot of time here, but I think it's important for us to note um, what was going on. Because after um, Jeroboam II uh, dies, he actually is one of the few kings that dies a natural death. There are kings that are going to rise after him. Um, and those kings are going to continue uh, in the sin of Jeroboam the first. And so let's, if, if you would give your attention to the reading about its word, 2 Kings 15 verses 8 through 12. It says, in the 38th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Zechariah, the son of Jeroboam, reigned over Israel in Samaria six months. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord as his fathers had done. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. Now, did you hear that? The the king's sin took the whole nation with him. It said it made Israel to sin. Now, God in his grace earlier on had warned that he was going to send Israel, and this was in 1 Kings, I will send Israel into exile if she continues in her sin. So God in his grace, as this thing is unfolding 200 years prior, gives them warning. They would have known, they would have heard that warning. But they continued to follow kings who were leading them further and further and further from the Lord. And did you hear how long he reigned? Now compare that. So Hosea begins to speak this prophecy, this warning. And the very first king after Jeroboam the second makes it only six months. Don't you think it would have caused somebody to pause and go, hmm, that's interesting. What's interesting is the king who kills him, who, takes, who usurps him, you know how long his reign was following him? One month. And he did the exact same thing that all the previous kings had done. He continued in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Now, think about God's grace there. These kings are not serving you well. It is, just, it is just this wheel turning, and one's on top, and then one's on bottom. One's on top, one's on the bottom. It's just this constant churning of history, right? And so these guys don't even, the first two kings that are really a part of would have been heavy in the early days of Hosea. They don't even make it seven months. That is evidence of God's gracious judgment on those kings for the sake of the people so that they would hear, but they didn't listen. They didn't listen. If you would, turn to verses 27 through 31, and we'll see the fate of uh, what would be one of the last kings um, uh, in this. It says, In the 52nd year of Azariah, king of Judah, Pekah, the son of Remaliah, began to reign over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned 20 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came and captured Aijon, Abel, Beth, Mach, Genoa, Kedesh, Hazor, Gilead, and Galilee, all of the land of Naphtali, and he carried the people captive to Assyria. So understand what's happening here. So... Years, so now we're almost 30 years into Hosea's prophecy or about 25 years in. And this latest king is doing evil. And now Assyria is beginning to chew away that land that they had gained under Jeroboam II. So what is that beginning to say to the people? The days of prosperity are ending. If God is Yahweh, if he's sovereign over all, And he's beginning to take away your blessing. And and notice what he doesn't do. It's not swift. He doesn't take it all away at one time. That's grace. He's trying to woo the people to listen. Listen. And then it goes on. Then Hosea, not Hosea, Hosea, the son of Elah, made a conspiracy against Pekah and son of Remaliah and struck him down and put him to death and reigned in his place. In the 20th year of Jotham, the son of Uzziah. Now, the rest of the acts of Pekah and all that he did, behold, they are written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel. So, as Hosea, the last king, comes to power, notice the thing is crumbling. And Hosea's words are coming more and more and more true. Why won't the people listen? Is this not God's grace? Listen to what Old Testament scholar, Dale Ralph Davis, says about this. 200 years have passed since Jeroboam I instigated his devious cult, which was 931 to 732 BC. And its grip is undiminished. Its poison still lethal. This was the quote-unquote original sin and is the tenacious sin of the northern kingdom, Running into it four times in one chapter only increases one's sense of the tragedy and ruin such worship is bringing. So listen, as the king goes and as the worship of the people goes, so go the people. This is critical for us to understand because here's a great question for us. How do we protect ourselves and, this is crucial, future generations from false worship and doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, we don't have golden calves set up here. Um, we're, we're not quite that bold anymore. Some are, maybe. Um, but what are some things we need to kind of think through? What are some ways in which we are not loving the generations to come, that we're not preparing them, right? There's a st- statistic that shows that college students who are Christians before they go to college What's the statistic on them remaining a Christian in college? Infinitesimally low, with one exception. Students who've been catechized. Now, what does that mean? Did I just utter a, something in tongues? Is this a is, is this a Catholic word? What is this? No, catechism just means to teach the, the, the Bible. It just means to instruct in the, the ways of thinking biblically, right? in the world will we send anybody out into this world without helping them to think biblically? So catechism is that. And the statistics show that those who have been catechized remain Christian between 80 and 85%. Unfortunately, so few are catechized overall. So this is why we want to take very seriously... The children's ministry here at Christ Community Church, we want to take very seriously um, the ways in which we equip our, our middle school students and the ways in which we equip our high school students. This is critical. These are critical things. And not make them strident and wrong about the wrong things, right? We don't want to make them scream judgment and justice at people without grace. We want them to be able to hold both intention and know that the Lord is good and he is with them and he is acting in history so that they would not lose hope. As they are told by some professor in college that all of this stuff is foolishness, right? And so we need to be asking. This is the idea of being a reformed church, that we would constantly be reforming with the exception of just changing all the time. We should only reform where it is wise to reform, to change only where it's wise to change. And make sure that what we are giving is the true, the true biblical story, the true God who comes in the person and work of Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, what ends up happening, unfortunately, let's flip quickly to 2 Kings 7, 6 through 18. Um, I'm going to actually leave you to read that, but I'm going to tell you the story. So basically how it ends is this. Hosea thinks that he's a mover and a shaker, and so he ends up uh, betraying the, the king of Assyria and doesn't pay him what he is due to him. How do you think the king of Assyria is going to take that? He didn't take it very well. In fact, what he did is he took over the entire north kingdom. And this was God's judgment upon the north kingdom for continuing in the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And so the story ends, unfortunately, very poorly for the north kingdom. They go into exile. Now, Is that the end of the story of God's people? No. No, they go into exile actually to preserve them ultimately so that they would be drawn back together. Remember what we just preached on the Holy Spirit. What happens at Pentecost? All these people who had been scattered in the various exiles, not just the exile of the North Kingdom, but the exile of the South Kingdom in 586. And even the exile of the North Kingdom is a warning to the South Kingdom. Don't go this way. I love you. So unfortunately, though they are scattered in Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit, they are brought back. Now, you may say, not every single one of them. No, not every single one of them. And that is the warning. That is a great warning to us. But how gracious is God to give us a heads up? To say, I love you, and there's a cost here. This is not not neutral. You don't get to decide. I, I get it. You've been on the earth for like 30 or 40 years and you have a lot of knowledge. I totally appreciate that. I know you've been on the internet some. That's great. That's fantastic. But since I kind of have been overlooking history for all this time, let me just say there's a better way, right? So God is so gracious to us. He's so good to us to keep his word before us and how he does that through his word, through his sacraments. We're going to see a baptism this morning, which is, by the way, both God's Redemptive justice being displayed and his call to covenant love. Someday wit will be challenged with the reality of his baptism to respond in faith. He won't be saved by these waters. But it is God communicating and saying, "Wit, I have borne you to a Christian family so that you would hear of my love for you all of your days. What a gift. What a gift." And so unfortunately, though the story ends. Poorly, as we would think of it ending poorly, it doesn't end poorly ultimately because Christ does come. Christ does bear the full weight of God's justice in his broken body. His wrath is exhausted for all of our sin, past, present, and future. And he calls for us to be wed to him And the beauty of the church. And our deeds between the now and the not yet clothe her in her righteousness and array her in greater beauty. So what we do matters. So my question for you is, has God ever disciplined you with his redemptive justice? And what was the result? Now, it's hard to, any analog or any kind of story that I could tell is going to pale in comparison to be taken into exile, by the way. Let's just get that, let's just be fair, right? But there was one time when I was fired, and I know you're shocked there was only one time. And I do have a theory, and it's a bell curve theory. Uh, I think there are some people who should never be fired because psychologically they can't take it. On the other end of the bell curve, there's some people ought to be fired more than once. But everybody ought to be fired once, just to, just to kind of, not everybody, but everybody, the middle of the curve. You ought to taste of it at least once so you don't believe your own hype. Well, I don't know if you knew this or not, but I was a pro- professional photographer at one time. And I worked at this place called the Showcase Camera School off of Cheshire Bridge Road. And at the time, I was newly married. Um, this was my second job. I always seemed to have a second job. So it's my second job. Um, it was going really well. I was doing art shows all over Atlanta. I was represented by a gallery called Lansdale Gallery. And my star was on the rise. I'd been published in Natural History Magazine. Um, things were going well. With the exception of something very important, which was my family and my worship. And so the Lord very graciously warned me. Get things in order. Recognize who has given you these gifts. Make sure that you use this for glory and not for your own your own hype. And actually, I was using it. I'm going to be honest with you. You guys know I'm already horrible, right? I mean, we've already established I'm not a very good person without Jesus, and neither are you. But uh, I had already kind of used this job to get just get out from having to deal with an eight year old and a five year old. Just was. It was an escape. And so uh, I had actually been um, asked by this, um, the art community in Gwinnett County, which was in no competition with Showcase Camera School, to come and do some teaching and some other things, which was, you know, again, the star was on the rise. And so I called my boss at Showcase Camera School, and and we're talking on the phone, and there was a class I was supposed to teach at Showcase, and it it didn't have enough students at the time, so I was going to shift my energy to the Gwinnett thing, right? So I'm just talking to Jan about that. And all of a sudden, the line goes dead. I'm like, hmm. So I call her back, and I said, hey, Jan, the line got disconnected. She says, no, it didn't. I hung up on you. And you're done. You're fired. No one talks to me like you just talked to me. You don't tell me what's going to happen. I tell you. Bring me your keys. And I'm going, what the world just happened? I know you're thinking, Cameron, you got kind of a smart mouth. I, I could kind of see how this could go. But genuinely, it's one of the few times I don't think I was being a smart aleck, which is probably a hard time reading it. But I, I got fired, and it was over. Gwinnett dwindled and went away. I no longer was represented by Lansdale Gallery, and God took it all away and said, because I love you, and you need to love your family, and you gaining all of this prestige and art is not going to do you one wits worth of good no Sorry about that. One bit of good. Uh, and, so, and so he took it away. He warned me. I didn't listen. And in grace, he took it away. And the, the, the good that came from it is profound. I'm still married. And I love my wife now more than I ever have. And I love my children now more than I ever have. And all because the Lord in graciousness stripped me of something that I was chasing after. Quite foolishly. And many of you probably have similar stories. What I want you to know is that's just God being good. That job you don't get, that house you don't get, I'm not saying we didn't get it yet, it's still, it, I, I, I don't want to talk about it. Uh, it's in process. <clears throat> um, and so, it's, and it's the school you don't get into, it's the mate you don't get. All of those things, all of those things are God who is sovereign seeing what's better for you than you could comprehend for yourself. Trust him. Trust Him. Trust Him. So what do we learn from these passages? What does it teach us about God? One, that He sends His word to us to warn of His redemptive justice and call us to return to Him in His covenant love. That's the beauty of His word. Two, that He is patient and His judgment is long developing. I want you to to know that. His judgment is long developing. 2 Peter 3 tells us that. Does He tarry? Because... Why? People are questioning. Terry's because he wants the family to get bigger. He wants more to respond to his covenant love. Three, that God is just in his judgment of us when we refuse to listen and remain stubborn in disobedience. When judgment falls, it's because it's the last thing that has to happen. So, having said that, one of the great evidences of his covenant love is the sacrament of baptism. And Wes is actually going to perform the baptism, do the homily, but I'm going to take care of the questions for him and for you, the congregation. So if you would, give your attention um, uh, to this sacrament this morning, thinking about your own baptism. Now, again, I know there's some of you in here who look at infant baptism and you think, y'all are crazy. What are y'all doing? Well, we're doing what the first four centuries of the church did. I mean, we kind of have the longest history. Uh, baby dedication is actually a dry baptism, not the other way around, uh, just so you know, historically. And so we are, we are doing what we have been called to do, which is honor the children that the Lord has given us. And in so doing, welcoming them into covenant community. Now, Rich Grote gets all the credit in the world for what I'm about to say next. Uh, he gave a great illustration. It's kind of like being a citizen. For those of you who are U.S. citizens, when did you become a U.S. citizen? The day you were born. When did you know you were a U.S. citizen and appreciate it patriotically? Much later. Can you refuse your citizenship? You can. Can you have your rights stripped if you become a felon? You can. So in the same way, baptizing an infant is us saying this child has been born into a community of people. Now, it'll be incumbent upon wit someday to respond in faith to that which he has been born into. Doesn't mean he's saved now, but he's got to respond. He's either got to accept his citizenship or reject it. But that's in the future when he has the intellect to be able to process that. But for those of you who've been baptized, I want you to um, consider your own baptism. The fact that Christ has died for you, the, the fact that Christ has risen for you. And the fact that you've been uh, made a citizen of a new kingdom, a new country. You are a citizen of heaven. And amen. So uh, if the Countins would, come on up. Uh, I'm going to ask them the questions. Hey, fellas. How are you? (laughs) All right. So the questions for the parents are, are these. Number one, do you acknowledge your child's need of the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ and the renewing grace of the Holy Spirit? Do you claim God's covenant promises on his behalf and do you look in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ for his salvation as you do for your own? Do you now unreservedly dedicate your child to God and promise in humble reliance upon divine grace that you will endeavor to set before him a godly example that you will pray with and for him and that you will teach him the doctrines of our holy religion and that you will strive by all the means of God's appointment to bring him up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? All right, now this question is for the congregation. If you're a member of our church, you will answer by the raising of your right hand. Now again, remember what we talked about, the generational aspect. Not everybody's gonna serve in children's ministry, but everybody can pray. Everybody can pray. So if you would, raise your right hand if you agree to this. Do you as a congregation undertake the responsibility of assisting the parents in the Christian nurture of this child? Uh, Quick count. Yeah, I think that covers it. Uh, and so I'm going to turn it over now to Wes. In fact, let me pr- I want to pray for y'all. I know it's a little out of order, but I'm going to do it. Uh, that's not shocking, is it? Uh, I want to pray for them, and then I'm going to turn it over to Wes, as he has the wonderful privilege to baptize his own son. Father, thank you for the Caltons. Thank you for their service to you in the kingdom. Thank you for their joy. Thank you for all of the life that burst forth from their boys. Thank you for their love for your local church. Thank you for their love for their own family and how it is a display of your glory and your love for us. God, I pray um, that you would use this baptism to bear fruit in its life, to bear fruit in us as we improve upon our own baptisms. In Christ's name, amen.